1: Big thanks to eBay for sponsoring this episode of Pass Gas. Passion, drive, patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. We're talking superchargers, turbos, exhaust kits, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for.
2: Baghdad, summer of 2006. Music crackles on a small transistor radio as three men take in the cool desert air. One of them is Saddam Hussein, and the other two are specialists Art Perkins and Adam Rogerson, members of the elite squad known as the Super 12, an American military group assigned to guard Saddam at his son Uday's island palace turned prison. Over the six months, the two Americans were tasked with guarding the tyrant. The three had formed an unlikely bond over their love of cars, almost to a point of friendship. The light-hearted car talk halted abruptly when Saddam dropped a bombshell. Quote, One time, Uday made a terrible mistake. The mood became cold and tense. He made me very angry. What happened? Specialist Rogerson asked. Saddam took a puff from his cohiba and replied, I was very angry with him, so I burned his cars. He started to laugh. I lit all of his cars on fire. It became a huge fire. His laugh grew into a sinister cackle as he relived the moment. Today on Past Gas, what happened that made Saddam so angry he burned millions of dollars worth of exotic supercars to the ground? What kind of priceless gems were lost forever? And what the heck were they listening to on that radio? Throw a match into Past Gas and what do you get? One of our most unbelievable car stories yet. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Past Gas. I am your host, Nolan, joined, as always, by Joe Weber. Uh, keep it juiced. <laughs> and James Pumphrey.
3: You know what time it is. Tool time. <laughs> 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 uh? <laughs>
1: uh james i think someone's already taken that by the time this airs
3: it'll probably be on a shirt you know what time it is tool time you <laughs> <laughs> got high low we're gonna start shooting high low soon yeah. getting in the tool mode yes, so i thought i'd make up a tool catchphrase right out of the blue just pulled it out of my brain you know what time it is tool time <laughs> Are you Jim the Tool Man? I'm Jim the Tool Man, Pumphrey baby, <laughs> and my my buddy uh, Nolan. Nolan is totally Al. Yeah, I don't think so, James. Thanks. <laughs> I'm Wilson. <laughs> I think Nolan's too young Thank for you. tool time. Yeah,
2: I. Uh, that's how, yeah. I, I I I've never seen Home Improvement. I'm aware of it. You're the older Dude, brother. Mostly, Life I'm aware was-
3: of. You're you would relate to Home Improvement so much. Yeah, totally, probably in, like of any sitcom, Home Improvement is the most aimed at you and your family.
1: <laughs> no, I think Nolan is would be more of a fan of men of a certain age, uh, but maybe that's just me. That's that's I mean, another. I, that's I think another. Tim I've the heard Tim of that. I'm
2: not sure. I'm not sure whether to take that as an insult or not. Uh, I did the intro early, so it feels like this is where I would say that this is not a sitcom podcast. This is a car podcast. Uh, Today, we're talking about one of um, a a diabolical figure in world history. Yeah, if you click
1: the title, you know who we're talking about already.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Saddam Hussein. But Joe, we're going to be talking a lot about his sons this episode. Saddam Hussein. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we're going to be talking a lot about his sons as well. Isn't that right? Joe? Yes.
1: Uh, his son Uday and his, um, Kuse, not so much Kuse, but also I'm probably mispronouncing that name. So
2: I believe it is Uday and Kuse. Um, Joe, this episode is a little different because you wrote this episode this week.
1: Yeah, I wrote this. um, I left a couple things out so I could interject and sound really smart. So maybe I'll do that. Uh, But most likely, I'll just forget them and just talk about yams or some dumb.
3: (laughs) Go on a 15-minute rant about jelly beans. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
2: And yeah, we never know what's going to happen on this show. So anything could happen. I'm excited though, to hear your knowledge on this subject. I don't really know a lot about Uday Hussein. Um, I don't really know a lot about anything he, as it turns so out. So The,
1: the big theme with this, and maybe I, I, I tried to focus on the cars because at the end of the day, this is a, a car podcast. So I didn't want to get into the nitty gritty of how he tortured people and how he's a psychopath, but he was insane. Uh, he was competitively psychopathic with his dad. (laughs) Like any, any cause he was like the heir apparent for his dad's regime. Um, Mm -hmm. he was the oldest son. Uh, and I think he took that as like, I have to be more violent than my dad to like show everyone that I'm strong and stuff. And it, it, he is just, he takes pleasure in, in torture and stuff like that.
3: So, there's a there's a cool movie called The Devil's Double about Uday Hussein. Oh, came out in 2011. It's great. I would love to
2: see that. Maybe. <laughs> so it sounds like he was already. I was just gonna say it sounds like he was already somewhat of a of a sociopath as it was, but now he's thrown into the situation where he also has to prove that he can take over an already
3: brutal regime. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's also it's also a like living a life without consequence. Yep. Uh, when you already start, mm-hmm. and you, you know you're raised in this way, and you probably have mental issues, but then to just keep pushing the envelope and pushing the envelope and pushing the envelope. Yeah. Like it, it almost like, f- with you that you never get like you want to get in trouble.
1: Yeah. Almost. It's what it's what mm-hmm. we see with like every psychopath documentary they want to be caught because they want to like brag about all the murders they did secretly. But mm-hmm. he was like, you know, you throw so much money. Like his dad was worth between seven and $40 billion. Like they never really know because he had his money everywhere. So, but like when you mm-hmm. have that much money and that much power, you just do like whatever your urges and your impulse and, and, you know that you have zero consequences. And so like James was saying, like he's getting to the point and you'll see where he's like doing these things Um, where he is. Like he just wants attention from his dad, basically, at the end of the day.
3: <laughs> yeah. And you like literally li- like you write the laws.
1: Yeah. Um. But I read this book. This book that I read was awesome. It was called The Prisoner in His Palace by Bill Bardenwarper. Uh, <laughs> came out and it is a really hard name to say. <laughs> Sounds
3: but, like a nerd. Yeah,
1: uh, it's a really <laughs> well written book. Highly recommend it if you're into that sort of thing. Gives you a great glimpse behind the scenes of the last days of Saddam's regime and and mm. uh when he was like awaiting his execution the last couple of years.
3: Huh. I'll give it. a will give it a shot, dude. I'll give All you right. my Kindle well. login. I remember my dad being like too stoked when Saddam got executed. (laughs) (laughs) Like I was like, all right, man. I
1: remember seeing the video on like cell phone footage. That's all I Mm -hmm. remember.
3: Yes.
2: That iconic, uh, iconic for interesting reasons. Cell phone footage of the the balcony. I believe it was, there's a balcony in the shot. Yes. Yeah. strange time to grow up. Say that. Yeah. All right. Well, Let's, uh, let's get into the story. Anyone familiar with the Iraqi tyrant known as Saddam Hussein knows how brutal and violent his regime was. The atrocities caused by his armies and his war crimes he personally oversaw will forever leave a bloodstained blemish in the history books of the Middle East. Saddam sometimes killed just for fun, and his son Uday didn't fall far from the murderous tree. In fact, Saddam's bad apple found his own plot of dirt and sprouted into an even nastier and deranged man, one who delighted in torturing and killing innocent people. As with seemingly all power-hungry megalomaniacs, the Husseins were also into expensive cars, with a collection totaling over 1,300 cars owned by Uday alone. Sure, they had political power, but where did all that wealth come from? How were they able to afford a fleet of Mercedes limos, countless Ferraris, and Gambala tuned Beamers and Porsches. To understand this, we're going to tell you everything you need to know to get up to speed on Saddam Hussein.
3: (laughs) Saddam Hussein was born into abject poverty in the Iraqi city of Tikrit, 175 kilometers north of Baghdad. His name literally translates to he who confronts in Arabic. In the 1950s, while living with his uncle in Baghdad, Saddam was indoctrinated by a nationalist movement called the Ba'ath Party. Ba'ath, Arabic for rebirth or renaissance, was an anti-imperialist and staunchly against the ruling monarchy. During this time, there was a whole lot of political unrest in the Middle East, and nationalist revolutionary groups were overthrowing monarchies and driving out British and French influence. Coups in countries like Egypt and Libya showed that if a movement was strong enough, They could pull off a successful revolt. Things came to a head in Iraq in 1958 when a secret group of military officers led by General Abd al-Karim Qasim overthrew the monarchy and inserted themselves into power. This event is known as the 14 July Revolution. The Baathists opposed the coup, and Saddam and others in the group attempted to assassinate Qasim. However, Saddam started shooting prematurely and the mission failed. Saddam fled to Cairo to hide out.
2: I, I I uh I believe it was like Saddam and like six other guys or something like that yeah. mm-hmm. tried to assassinate. It was a very small group. And they yeah, um,
1: Saddam totally blew it. He shot early. <laughs> I think he was too excited. Um and it yeah, just Saddam failed. He shot, shot himself first, he got dude. shot in the leg and stuff and was injured. And then just
3: like, like- Cheddar Bob. <laughs> just like Cheddar Bob. But it also Bob, shows dude.
2: like how contentious things were in the country at the time if there's multiple groups going yeah. around uh with their own plans of coups and then other groups saying no nah, no nah, you guys didn't do it right or wait like wait well, the, we gotta we gotta be the ones taking charge this here. isn't like
1: a huge you part know? of the story but like the bathists were nationalists iraqi nationalists and a lot of the other groups were pan-arabic so meaning like you know it was it uh turned out to be like more communism and it, it was just like uh multiple countries uh, worth of revolutionaries that were all going for like the same thing. And mm. I don't really know the details on that, but I think the eventual goal was to have like a unified Middle East and, and the, that the sounds, Bathists did not like that. That sounds nice. Okay. <laughs> unified Middle yeah. East. Yeah. Yeah. There's like not that many like differing opinions over there. So they, I feel like they would all get along really well. Just kidding. In
3: 1963, the Ba'ath Party finally <laughs> pulled off a successful coup, killing Qasim. Saddam returned to Iraq. This coup was supported and possibly even engineered by the CIA who saw Qasim's communist allies in the USSR as a threat. But the joke was on the Americans. The newly in charge Ba'ath Party immediately turned to the USSR for aid, icing out the Americans. Oops. Oops. In the six months after the coup, the Ba'ath Party executed as many as 10,000 Iraqi men they considered communists. It was a brutal show of force, and Saddam's psychopathic role in the violence made him a rising star in the party. It also helped that he was cousins with the top dog of the Ba'ath Party, Ahmed Hassan al-Bakr. From 1963 to 1979, Saddam rooted out people in his own party he perceived as a threat and stepped on the throats of his allies to become general and eventually vice president right behind Bakr. As his cousin grew older and weaker, Saddam saw his chance to take power, becoming president himself. The first order of business purge any dissenters within the government. Hundreds of officials were shot, ushering in a new era of paranoia, violence, and confrontation. That's what I'd do. That's what I would do. (laughs) Trying to think of a a fun car
2: fact we can throw in here (laughs) to uh, keep this a car podcast at this time. Like when we first pitched this idea I was like yeah this is awesome like we should definitely talk about this but I forgot that we would have to have like a lot of context that wasn't this necessarily is, car related This is related. all the
1: context we need now it's getting into the car stuff I swear
2: All right great Makes me just want to do a history podcast like yeah, just straight up Yeah I felt
1: like like I was trying to simplify it but there's so much so much that happened between 1958 and 1979 that I was like I can't ignore this um, but I need to do it as quickly as possible and put it in simple terms. So hopefully it wasn't too much like, yeah. uh, you know, coup stuff.
2: Well, uh, I would, uh, if you're interested in more of this very complex topic as you're listening to this, I would definitely suggest, uh, finding some books on the, that, that time period. This is by far like our show is by far not the, the, uh, the only source you should take uh, for these events definitely not Uh, because yeah is this stuff mentioned in that book joe
1: um not really like a little bit yeah but it, it's uh it's more about the six months that the super 12 was like watching saddam before his execution gotcha, okay. and it,
2: how they like bonded so okay well we'll keep going We've mentioned the oil crisis of the nineteen seventies a million times before on this podcast, and even more somehow on our YouTube <laughs> channel, but we've never done a deep dive on the cause of it. It was such a worldwide event that it's worthy of its own episode. But all you need to know for this story is that the Organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Countries, or AOPEC or, or I think you just goddamn, say OPEC with an A. O. APEC. Yeah. Or OPEC with an A. O APEC placed an embargo on oil to countries that supported Israel and the Yom Kippur War. <laughs> to put it simply, an embargo is basically like when a Karen eating at a restaurant complains about her steak being too bloody. And the server is like, you ordered medium rare. This steak is perfectly medium rare. And the Karen maintains that she knows what medium rare means, even though she actually meant medium well. Then the server has had enough of this Karen and kicks her out and bans her from ordering steak in that restaurant. Only in this case, the Cairn and the server are different countries, and the stake is the resources manufactured within the server's country. Mm. And the Cairn is backed by the U.S. government. (laughs) Countries like Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Kuwait cut off oil supplies to countries such as the U.K., Canada, Japan, the Netherlands, and the U.S., creating a, quote, panic at the pump during an era when cars were huge and thirsty for gas. Nobody cared about fuel efficiency because gas was so cheap, but now gas is expensive. Saddam saw this as an opportunity, and when his Middle Eastern neighbors refused to sell their black gold over political posturing, Iraq and their rich oil fields were more than happy to oblige. Just a year earlier, in 1972, Saddam had nationalized the oil industry in Iraq. When OPEC cut off the West's oil supply, Iraq saw profits quadruple. This meant that the regime could allocate resources to economic and social programs, but it also had a sneaky added benefit. It made well-connected Iraqi insiders very, very wealthy, especially Saddam. Before his capture in 2003, Saddam's estimated worth was between $7 to $40 billion. Flush with cash, Saddam built palaces with infamous golden toilets, hosted lavish parties, and most importantly, got himself a few choice whips. I'm not talking the kind in your closet.
1: <laughs> Although he probably had some of those too.
3: <laughs> is it lavish parties or lavash parties? <laughs> it is lavish. Well, like a bread. Lavish, I mean, what James. if you
1: have like uh what if you have hummus and you have a lavash
3: bread? Lavash is pr- top 3 flatbreads for me. Do you think it's better than pita? <laughs> Depends on the pita. Yeah. But it can be, for sure. I like naan. Ooh, naan. Naan's great. Ooh. I like non-bread. Crackers,
1: probably the worst flatbread.
3: Yeah, <laughs> lavash is a. It's great for a sandwich.
1: Yeah, like a like a doner like kebab wrap. wrap.
3: Ooh. Ooh. that's what I'm gonna order for lunch today. Yeah, I can't wait to come back to the city. <laughs> there's nothing. There's nothing out here.
1: <laughs> yeah, you're in like a not only a food desert, but just like a just like a culture desert. Yeah, it's
3: like just it's all just old people. <laughs> all you can order here on postmates is mayonnaise
1: (laughs) (laughs) and it comes in a bag
2: (laughs) (laughs) well among saddam's growing car collection was a 1960s rolls royce shadow an armored cadillac fleetwood and a slew of unique mercedes benzes which happened to be his favorite car manufacturer one mercedes in particular was one of the most unique and rarest in the world A 1935 Mercedes 500K. This cream-colored roadster with its elegant teardrop fenders and swooping lines was originally owned by King Ghazi bin Faisal of Iraq. During a trip to Barcelona in 1935, the king attended an exhibition that featured the car and instantly fell in love with it. It wasn't your typical 500K. Mercedes had hired coach builders Erdmann and Rossi to create a special show car, and the result was an even more streamlined version with fully closed-off fenders that accentuated the Art Deco design. King Ghazi commissioned Mercedes to build another one, which was sent back to Iraq with him. Unfortunately, he was only able to enjoy it for a few short years until he was killed in a car accident in 1939. The Roadsters sat in storage for the better half of a century until Saddam claimed it for his own collection. Other cars in Saddam's garage included a Ford Woody Wagon? A London cab, multiple dune buggies. I mean, you gotta have, you gotta have more than one, and a pink 1955 Chevy Bel Air. Hell yeah, dude! Weirdly enough, the old war criminal had an
3: eye for Chevys. Multiple dune buggies is something that I strive to have. <laughs> I don't think multiple they're that expensive. Dune, I, mean,
1: I think you could get a couple, uh, uh-huh. a couple of yeah, dungeons.
3: It's a realistic goal.
4: Yeah. Uh you know, I, I mean, have the equivalent
3: I, today is a side by side.
2: Yeah, I was gonna say like this would be like if uh Bashir al Assad in, in Syria had like a garage full of Polaris <laughs> uh razors. I got know?
3: the golf, I have the eight six, I drive a Tiguan, and then I have multiple dune buggies. <laughs> <laughs> My
2: neighbors hate me. <laughs>
3: How many dune buggies? Uh, I don't know.
2: Multiple. Multiple. <laughs> I stopped counting. <laughs> yeah. It was just too many, man.
3: Dude, that'd be so fun. I got
2: the kind with the paddles on the tires. <laughs> I got the kind with uh, also paddles on the tires. <laughs> I got,
3: you know, a sand rail does wheelies. I got my going into town buggy. <laughs> <laughs> By
2: 1981, Saddam was a full-blown dictator. He used a stream of oil money to buy a fleet of Chevy Malibus. Iraq didn't have a domestic auto industry to supply vehicles for government operation and taxicabs, so Saddam put the order in for 25,000 G-body Malibus. The only issue was, the U.S. wasn't too keen on Saddam's bloody rise to power, even though they aided it at times, and they had sanctions on Iraq that prevented the direct sales of manufactured goods to the country. So, GM called up their Canadian office who agreed to broker the deal. General Motors of Canada sent over the first 12,500 Malibus from their Oshawa, Ontario plant, and GM got a cool $200 million in today's money from Saddam. When the, $200 million? Yeah, dude. Good lord. When the cars arrived in Iraq, they were all defective and poorly built. GM anticipated the driving conditions in Iraq and bolstered the cooling system, air conditioning, and suspension, but they still broke down like crazy. Ford fans are pumping their fist right now. Wait,
1: wait. So two million? Oh, two hundred. Never mind. Sorry, I th- I was doing the math wrong, and I was like, they paid eighty dollars per car. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Saddam was so disgusted by the cars that he canceled the delivery of the other half of the fleet. The rest of the Iraqi taxi spec cars were sold for dirt cheap in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> Cars were a status symbol, but also a passion for Hussein. Years later, when Saddam was being guarded by American soldiers in a bombed out palace, he would use his love of American cars to relate to and probably manipulate his captors. Cars were a passion shared not only by Saddam and the members of the Super 12, but his brutal son as well.
3: We'll be right back with more of this story, but first, a word from our sponsors. Uday Saddam Hussein al-Takridi was born in 1963 to Saddam Hussein and Sajida Talfa, Saddam's maternal cousin and wife. His dad was in prison when he was born, and it's rumored that the Ba'ath party members used Uday's diapers to smuggle messages in. When he was 20 years old, Uday was put in charge of the Iraqi Olympic Committee by his father. It would be at this seemingly benign job that Uday would prove himself to be even more sadistic than his dad. Uday ran the committee with an iron fist, overseeing athletes and their coaches with a critical eye. He intimidated everyone, and for good reason. If athletes or coaches were not producing good results, he had them sent to secret prisons and tortured.
2: That's how you motivate athletes. That actually sounds like my high school football program. (laughs) Yeah, man. (laughs) Got him. No, I'm just kidding, we had a great program.
3: (laughs) An Iraqi athlete who was lucky enough to escape, Raid Ahmed, said, he would have coaches and athletes put in his private prison in the Olympic Committee building where they tortured people. I always managed to not be punished. There is always a strong possibility of always being beaten. But when I won, Uday would be very happy.
1: Dude, you're right. You're Ahmed sounds a little bit like uh, Ben Stiller.
3: <laughs> Between night. What is this, a private prison for ants? <laughs> The love of torture only grew as Uday got more into drugs and partying. It literally became a lifestyle for him as he started importing black market items like booze, cigarettes, cigars, and fertilizer. What?
2: I I feel like the fertilizer is, (laughs) it could have a a very practical purpose that I'm not privy to, but also it could just be a thing where like, hey man, I'm not allowed to have this, (laughs) so I'm going to get it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I love farmers, dude. Let's get some of that more fertilizer in.
2: He's like trying to show off to some yeah. ladies at partying at his house or whatever. He's like, let me show you my fertilizer room. Oh you think Which my not- you think
1: my design choices are horse? Mm. Well, how about I import a ton of horse? <laughs> <laughs> you wanna go
3: check out my stinky room? <laughs> <laughs> Uday used the sanctions against Iraq to his advantage, smuggling in outlawed items and amassing a great fortune in the process. He even used his connections and influence to smuggle alcohol and racehorses to rich Gulf countries where things like drinking and gambling were illegal. Uday fell in love with the Playboy lifestyle and with it developed many addictions. Among the biggest was a love of fancy cars. Uday's personal secretary, Defer Muhammad Jabir, was quoted as saying, Cars were part of every minute of Uday's life, and he used to spend most of his time trying to search for types and models and ways of obtaining them. It became an obsession. (laughs) Even to the point of involving cars in political and business dealings, Uday used every transaction to get a new car, whether it involved a commercial partner, visiting diplomat, or political figure. And it was said that he would choose cars based on the color suit he was wearing to the meeting.
1: That's how you choose which car you drive, right, James?
3: Yeah, I only have black and green (laughs) clothes. (laughs) Uh, Am I going to wear my black suit or my teal suit? (laughs) Uday's appetite for exotics was insatiable, maybe only topped by the Sultan of Brunei. He had a massive and eclectic mix of cars, including but not limited to a pair of Nissan Patrols, a McLaren F1, a Lamborghini Machine Diablo SV, a half dozen porches, Countless Dodges and Cadillacs, a Plymouth Prowler. Shouts to Yuri uh, from Straight Pipes. Uh, you're got the same taste as an evil guy. A Lamborghini, Ella. Maybe you're a psychopath too. I'm not gonna say. I'm not saying definitely, but maybe Yuri from the Straight Pipes is a psychopath. It sounds know, like you're maybe. saying he's
1: a psychopath.
3: I don't know. I'm just saying maybe he is.
1: He's Canadian. He can't be.
3: No, he's Canadian. He helped broker the deal to get them the uh, cars. Oh, he is a psychopath. Follow the money. Follow the money. <laughs> follow the money. Follow the money, dude. Follow the loonies. Follow the loonies, guys. Follow the loonies, guys.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Yuri. S- the straight pipes. Oil <laughs> travels o- in large pipes. O- oil pipes. Usually over great distances. And you know what? You want them to be straight as possible across those long distances. <laughs> oh, my God. Follow it's the money. freaking oh my gosh, sorry. Follow the
3: loonies. Follow the loonies. Follow, follow the loonies, <laughs> dude. Uh, he also had a Rambo Lambo, which is a Lamborghini Machine LM002. And that was Uday,
2: not not Yuri Tereshin. No.
3: Yuri's no. got a Honda Element. <laughs> you know what oil's made out of? Elements. Elements. Element skateboard. Joe's got a skateboard behind him. His Rambo Lambo met an unfortunate fate. Uh, which we'll get into later. He also had a Mini Cooper convertible. (laughs) Uday owned 18 custom Rolls Royces, which included Silver Shadows, Silver Spirits, Corniches, Cornichons, that's a tiny pickle, and Silver Rates. I think it's Corniche. (laughs) Corniche? Oh, Cornichon is a tiny pickle. Uh, It's French. (laughs) Uh, Many of these were worth up to $550,000 nowadays. In fact... He was at one point Rolls-Royce's best customer. Ooh, guys, that's a silver shadow on your history. <laughs> Followed in his, following in his father's footsteps, he amassed at least 22 different Mercedes-Benzes, including a whole fleet of limos.
1: Do you know who Rolls-Royce's best customer is now? Drake. Jeffrey. Jay-Z. Jeffrey, Epstein? nephew of... Star. Uh, No, Jeffrey. <laughs> <laughs> Jeffrey, nephew of Seltan Brunei. Really? Yeah.
3: Oh. His his Jeffru?
1: I can't remember his last name. Bakhtiari or something like that.
3: <laughs> this is my this is my nephew Jeffrey. Nefru. My Jeff-
1: <laughs> <laughs> my <Jeffru. laughs> this is my nephew Jeffy. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Uday also loved to modify his cars, sometimes beyond recognition. He's like, Will I am? <laughs> he modified the rear of one of his Rolls Royces to resemble a Mercedes. Two of Uday's Mercedes saloons had war scenes painted on them, and one had color-changing paint to confuse pursuers. When he wasn't having his own cars modified, he bought ultra-limited models from tuning houses like Gimbala. One noteworthy car in his stable is the awesomely garish Gimbala-tuned BMW 635 CSI. Oh yeah! Or yeah! yeah. What's the CSI? Yeah! <laughs> oh. Yo! 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 Dabba doo. <laughs> dabba dabba
2: <doo. laughs> Yo! Th- okay, this Gimbala looks exactly like like this is Max's favorite it is. car. It's like th-
3: yeah. To call this car's styling overboard would be an understatement. Painted in Gumbala's signature yellow, this coupe had vented boxed fenders on the rear, a hood scoop, and a grill that was also painted yellow. The front wheels were 9 inches wide, 13 inches wide on the rear. Inside, Gumbala installed Recaro seats and a freaking TV in the dash. Well, you could Watch. This is like pre-internet, so you couldn't even... Yeah, maybe like ER is well, that
1: on right now? <laughs>
3: yeah. Although he loved German cars, Ferrari was said to be Uday's absolutely favorite car company. By the mid-90s, he had whole garage floors dedicated to the stallions, including a pink Testarossa, sick flex, a 348 Barchetta, and not one, but two F40s. Only one survived the Iraqi invasion, and even then it took years to track it down. More on that
2: Later. Um, I just wanted to say that these Gambala Beamers are so sick.
3: Yeah, I I
1: talked shit about it, but it's like honestly, I would love to have that car.
3: I would drive this. Yeah, that thing. Yeah,
2: it's like so ridiculous. <laughs> it looks it, it it just looks fun, you know. Yeah,
3: and
1: you know it would get it would turn heads. You bring oh, that to yeah. Cars and Coffee. Oh
2: yeah.
3: <laughs> Oh, you bring that to cars and yeah, coffee. Yeah, you're the king. You're leaving. You're not leaving without without a million new friends.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you bring that to cars and coffee. You're gonna have your own car enthusiast themed coffee brand yeah. uh, by the time and you're. You, you bring you, that to you, cars, cars and
3: coffee. Be. Magnus Walker walk right up to you. And go, oi, nice call, mate. You bring that car to cars and coffee,
1: and you're leaving with Matt Farah's card.
3: Yeah, you're. You bring that car to cars and coffee. You're leaving with Matt (laughs) Farah.
2: Uday's 1,300 cars were stored in one of seven massive garages he had spread out over northern Iraq. To care for his collection, he employed 15 full-time staff members. One employee's entire job was to fill binders with photos and information on luxury cars so that Uday could shop easier.
1: Like, he doesn't know that Yahoo exists at this point? (laughs)
2: Since so many countries had sanctions on Iraq, he had to be clever with how the vehicles were purchased and imported. Documents uncovered during his capture revealed that Uday was very specific about not only how the cars entered the country, but how they were paid for. When he sent his personal secretary, Jabir, to go buy five different Excaliburs, which are American neoclastic cars with Studebaker guts, Uday wrote, quote, "...all the cars in this catalog should be bought as per address on the last page." Payment should be agreed either against oil, euros, cement, or any other products that can be exported through Jordan. And in classic psychopathic fashion, he ended the letter with a little drawn skull and crossbones and the words, Don't come back unless you bring the contract with you. Don't come back. Love. Uday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Little skull. And the, t- the
1: skull has like a little tongue sticking out. I'm a little <laughs> bit, you know, I'm, I rule with an iron fist, but I am also have a little fun side.
2: <laughs> Intimidation was a common theme with Uday Hussein. He would do anything to get his hands on cars he desired, which were more important to him than other things in his life, like his own brother. During a business deal, the emir of Qatar gifted two cars to Uday and his brother Kusey. Uday immediately demanded his brother hand over his car to him. Other times, Uday used political smoke and mirrors to get cash and cars. The Iran-Iraq war was almost an eight-year-long conflict between the two countries that ended in a stalemate in 1988. Iraq was indebted to their neighbor Kuwait for more than $14 billion for the money Kuwait lent them during the war. And Saddam could not pay them back. So he accused Kuwait of slant drilling across the border and used that excuse to send troops in. That's when you have your... Steal your milkshake. Yeah. Yes, stealing the milkshake. You got your oil platform. You got your platform in one location, but then you use the drill to go travel horizontally. And steal your
4: milkshake!
2: (laughs) This two day occupation is eventually what led the US and UN to intervene, resulting in the Gulf War. But before that started, Uday had used the occupation as an excuse to steal 160 cars from Kuwait. When Saddam was finally driven out of the country, his troops set fire to 600 Kuwaiti oil wells on the way out, a literal scorched earth retreat. It got to the point where Uday had so many cars, he couldn't even drive all of them. Rare and exotic masterpieces of engineering sat untouched in underground parking lots collecting dust, some with less than 100 kilometers on the odometer. Jabir said of Uday's collection, quote, he had so many cars that some were never driven. Sometimes we would go out, and after a few miles we would break down because the car had been standing unused for so long that there was moisture in the exhaust and the tires had perished. Along with Jabir, Salim Kasim was another trusted member of Uday's garage. Once a member of the Mukhabarat, a.k.a. the Iraqi Central Intelligence Agency, Salim was acting as head mechanic for Uday. His specialty was electrical systems and he was tasked with being an expert on every single car Uday owned. This meant that Salim had to travel to where these cars were being made in order to learn firsthand how to repair them. Uday sent Salim to study Cadillacs in Toronto, Rolls Royces in Birmingham, Mercedes in Vermont, and Lamborghini machines in Bologna. Salim made sure Uday's most prized possessions were maintained, including multiple Maseratis, a 1988 25th anniversary Kuntosh, a Lotus Esprit, and a 1957 Chevy. But Salim was forbidden on working on his own cars. Even though he received as close to VIP treatment as someone within Uday's inner circle could achieve, Salim said years later, after the regime had been overthrown, that, quote, freedom is much sweeter.
1: Yeah. that I mean, that would suck I mean, if you're, like, so knowledgeable and you have zero time to work on your own cars and... It's just like yeah. when it goes from being a passion to being
3: work. You're describing Zach joke. I
1: know. <laughs> As I'm saying this, I'm like, oh man, <laughs> we can't bring we can't bring our own cars into the office.
3: <laughs> yeah. For how brutal. And I mean,
2: it's be. just like. What? Sorry, I was just gonna say like, you can just totally see how us Salim would be gaslit probably where it's like look man like Uday's like look dude like I give you like I give you everything mm-hmm. like you are protected here you're you're I give you a great life all this other stuff yeah,
1: you get to work on great cars
2: <laughs> yeah while that is technically true it's also like yeah he also doesn't have the freedom to do what he wants when he wants you know yeah I would suck <laughs> that'd be awful
3: for how brutal and inhumane Saddam was, Uday was even more sadistic and bloodthirsty. Maybe it was knowing that there would be no consequences, or realizing he was heir apparent to his father's violent regime, but Uday acted on his every barbarous urge. He was impulsive and quick to anger, and oftentimes it ended in conflict within the family. I apologize for the pronunciation of this. Kamel Hana Gageo had served as Saddam's personal valet, bodyguard, and food taster, ooh, that's a Gary job since 1974 when saddam was just an aspiring war criminal he was trusted by saddam but not so much by uday kamel introduced saddam to the woman who had become his second wife samira shabandar this rubbed uday the wrong way as he felt it was a slight to saddam's first wife and his mother During a dinner party on October 18th, 1988, Uday and Kamal got into a dispute and Kamal was murdered in front of the other guests. Accounts vary, but some say Kamal was bludgeoned, then shot, and others say that he was killed with an electric carving knife. Saddam was enraged by this brazen act and sentenced Uday to death. Whoa! Uday spent three months in an Iraqi prison awaiting his execution, but was released and sent to Switzerland to work as the Iraqi Iraqi ambassador's assistant. I was about to say, like, "Eh, you know what? Go represent the country to uh, Switzerland. (laughs) That ended when Uday was deemed too violent by the Swiss authorities, then deported back to Iraq. You'd think that at some point he would have realized that he was cut a massive break when he was allowed to work in Switzerland instead of being put to death, but rationale doesn't apply to violent sons of dictators in the same way that it does to the rest of us. Uday was sent back to Iraq with basically no repercussions, no lessons learned, with barely a slap on the wrist. Years later, in 1995, Uday's violent side would rear its ugly head again. And this time, Saddam knew exactly how to react.
2: We'll get back to more past guests, but right now, a word from our sponsors.
1: Big thanks to eBay for sponsoring this episode of Pass Gas. Passion, drive, patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. We're talking superchargers, turbos, exhaust kits, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for.
2: August 7th, 1995, a formal dinner was held in Tikrit, Iraq. Sitting at the table were numerous Hussein family members and trusted government officials. Sounds nice. They had convened to discuss Iraq's worsening security and economy. An argument erupted between Saddam's half-brother, Watban Ibrahim al tikriti and Saddam. Watban argued that given his erratic behavior and loose regard for the law, Uday should have his security clearance revoked. When Uday protested, Watban mocked his speech disorder. The argument grew to a shouting match, and Saddam was so upset he kicked both Watban and Uday out of the dinner party. Watban returned home and was met by Uday and his armed bodyguards. The confrontation escalated into a shootout, which resulted in six people dead and Watban seriously injured. In the aftermath of the carnage, it finally dawned on Uday that shooting his uncle was a bad idea and Uday dropped Watban off at the hospital and fled to Jordan. Saddam, hearing of the incident, went to visit his half-brother in the hospital. When he saw him lying on the hospital bed, Saddam became enraged and ordered the destruction of Uday's car collection. He knew that destroying Uday's prize collection was the only thing that would get through to him. Saddam and his bodyguards drove to the presidential palace. Bodyguards rounded up the cars and lit them on fire. The blaze quickly grew to an inferno. Saddam, watching from a distance, laughed as 40 to 50 priceless exotics turned to smoldering piles of ash. There's no record of exactly what cars were burned, but assuming the average car was between eighty dollars to $120,000, it's safe to say that at least $4 million worth of cars were burned in a single night. And it was almost a lot more. Saddam didn't know Uday had multiple garages and thought he was torching a majority of his collection. If he had known about Uday's six other larger garages, the devastation could have been far greater. In John Ronson's book, The Psychopath Test, he mentions that one way to elicit emotion from a psychopath is to take away their possessions. Saddam knew that destroying his son's prized possessions, his cars, was one of the only things that would affect him. And he was right. When Uday heard what his father had done... He had a nervous breakdown. He blamed his brother Kusei for not protecting the garage, then took matters into his own hands. He feared his father would find out about his other garages, and Uday set up barriers with armed guards protecting his fleets. Saddam never came for the rest of Uday's 1,300 cars, and eventually the family worked through their differences. Not like a normal family would, with words and hugs and tears. No, the Husseins found common ground by executing a bunch of cousins and brother-in-laws. That's creepy.
3: (laughs) Having attacked almost every neighboring country and burned every bridge with their allies, Saddam and his regime were out of luck. The last car Uday ever bought was a 2001 Bentley Azure he purchased through a friend in Jordan for $230,000. A few years later, the U.S. used weapons of mass destruction as a reason to invade Iraq, a justification that turned out to be false. What happened to the rest of Uday's collection? What fates lie for the other 1,250 cars? When Saddam's regime was toppled, chaos erupted. Iraqi citizens used the confusion to pilfer some of Saddam and Day's cars. American troops guarding the presidential palace recall Iraqis coming to the gate with car keys ready to pick up their Benzes and Rolls Royces. <laughs> Hell yeah. Where'd they get the key?
1: They were, all the keys were
3: like in the cars. Uh. Some were lucky enough to get away with the car, and some found out the hard way that Uday didn't keep his car's gas tanks full. An unfortunate Iraqi drove a sputtering Rolls Royce only a few feet to the gate of the palace before it died, then tried unsuccessfully to push the 5,000-pound vehicle. Americans let this happen for a while before being ordered to destroy the rest of the cars at the palace as things grew out of hand. The immaculate 57 Chevy was run over by a tank as American troops winced. A Lamborghini Machine LM002, one of only 328 ever made, was stuffed with explosives and detonated into a concrete barrier by the U.S. Army to demonstrate the destructive power of an IED. A bunch of cars were dismantled for parts, but not all of them were destroyed.
2: Dude, if you were in Iraq when they were destroying... Day's car collection, please hit us up yeah. mm. at passgas at donut
1: Media. I didn't even think that someone yeah. some listening could have been a troop back then.
3: What's our email address? Passgas at donutmedia.com. Passgas
2: at donutmedia.com. If you were a part of this, yeah, we want to hear, from hear from you. about
3: it. This <laughs> sounds sick. <laughs> a pink striped Rolls Royce was given to Baghdad police to use as a cruiser. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah! in 2004 Iraq's minister of finance auctioned off a huge chunk of Uday's collection with the profits indirectly going back to the people of Iraq a few random cars were spotted in locked garages by US soldiers like the pink Testarossa and a Porsche tuned by Gimbala the yellow BMW was last seen caked in dirt in the middle of a field I want a pink Testarossa mm. yeah but whatever happened to those two Ferrari F40s Well, one is still missing, but the other was tracked down by a Ferrari fan in 2013. While pursuing a post about abandoned cars in the Porsche blog Renlist, Bazan Amin, an Iraqi national living in Stockholm, saw a series of pics that looked like they could have been Uday's F40. The car was covered in years of dust and looked to be in horrible shape, but there were some amazing context clues, like storefronts and gas stations in the background. Could this actually be Uday's lost F40? It would take years of investigating to find the answer. When Mazan showed the photos to his dad, he instantly recognized the background as their hometown of Erbil, Iraq. This led Mazan and his dad to buy a plane ticket to Iraq to hunt down the lost F-40. It led them on a wild goose chase with many shady characters, but eventually they came across the Ferrari under a bunch of tires. The new owner agreed to sell the car to Mazan and his dad for $300,000, despite its derelict state, but the deal never materialized. It would have been impossible to ship the car back to Sweden. Plus, while Mazan was waiting, the new owner had a Ferrari mechanic come and fix the car and now wanted (laughs) $1.15 million for it. Mazan never ended up with Uday's F40.
1: You know what he has. Yeah. Ran when parked. (laughs) Um, There's a really good uh, (laughs) article and video about this on car scoops worth checking out.
2: Check it out. Uday's legacy of terror and violence came to an end on July 22nd, 2003, after a lengthy shootout with American troops. His father, Saddam, was hanged in a public square on the first night of Eid three years later, ending a violent regime that had lasted 40 years, but giving birth to a new era of political unrest. So much pain and turmoil surrounds this situation that it feels pedantic to focus on something as frivolous as cars, for sure. But as car nerds, it's impossible not to ask, what about those cars, though? <laughs> so now that we know why Saddam torched his son's cars, we can answer the burning question that's been on all of our minds. What was Saddam listening to on the radio way back in 2006? Well, it was Mary J. Blige. Maybe the most surprising part of the story is that Saddam Hussein was a diehard Mary J. Blige
3: fan. <laughs> and honestly, how could you not? Be? Who could blame him?
2: Yeah,
1: she's got swagger.
3: Um, our producer Tommy pointed out that you know we were kind of apologetic for talking about so much context and history, but you know this is a history podcast, and uh, cars, you know, since their inception, have been a huge part of history. Um, you know, the oil crisis and the fact that, you know, these countries were able to shift global politics with an embargo. Cars are the reason that mm-hmm. we wanted the oil. You know what I mean? So yeah. mm-hmm. um, cars are such a huge business and such a huge part of the world and have been such a huge part of, you know, our culture for so long that it really is ingrained in the history of This planet for the past hundred and twenty years. So yeah, and even um, if
1: you're not like a car person, if you if you have no more access to oil or gas, your livelihood is cut off. Like you mm -hmm. can't go to work, you can't go to the store, and that you can't buy stuff because
3: it can't ship. Yeah, so So
1: that's very influential. Even if even if you don't like cars, you have to appreciate their impact on society and
3: history. Mm -hmm. Yeah and it's not even like oh you have to it's like you have to <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> i i constantly have to you know like i get behind a truck that's moving slow and i get mad in the moment and i have to realize that like oh everything in my house came on a truck let's cut them a little uh-huh. bit of slack
3: <laughs> every time i uh every time i'm behind a truck that's like moving slowly i remember the last time i moved and had to drive like this big truck <laughs> yeah. and i was like yeah that guy might be terrified right now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that he probably has like, you know, 18 gears or whatever. And yeah, probably... The shouts
3: to truckers.
1: Yeah. We should do an episode on truckers. We got to find an angle that's interesting. Mm-hmm. But like, it is something we never think about ever.
3: If you're a trucker, if you're a trucker, like, and you know, there's like some trucking legend or like some like cool, like strike... Or something like some cool story in the history of trucking. Let us know. Uh, PassGas at DonutMedia.com. And speaking of letting us know and uh, and emails, we got a couple of fan emails here. Ooh. Um, I, no, we actually have one fan email here. Um, Nolan, you want to read it?
2: Yeah, sure. Today's fan mail comes from a listener named Elvin. Hello, Elvin. He says, greetings from Orlando, Florida. I just want to say that I thoroughly enjoy the podcast and it is single-handedly the funniest one I've ever had the pleasure of listening to Thank you very much, Alvin. You all remind me of how my buddies and I are when we get together and hang out. Oh, that's, that's really the, nice. That's the goal. So I'm, I'm glad we're accomplishing that. Yeah, thank that's you.
3: That's what we are. That's what,
1: whoa. Hey, hey we're just a couple <laughs> of buddies hanging out. Yeah, it was a few buddies hanging
3: out. <laughs> That's how we pitched the show. <laughs> yeah, it's just, you know, it's just like us three buddies. You take a couple of buddies.
1: You put them in the same room, and then they all talk <laughs> and have fun like they normally do. <laughs>
3: all right, all right. All right.
2: <laughs> Elvin continues. Uh, I cried literal tears when I heard James's impression of the Italians <laughs> during the Ford vs. Ferrari series. <laughs> I had to listen to it again, and my seven-year-old daughter in the car with me, and she said, she kept saying, "Give me a cigarette, give me a cigarette." I'm an Italian. <laughs> <laughs>
4: what? <laughs> All right. Hell yeah! Keep it up,
2: and know you have a Florida man as a fan. P.S. I also hate Hamilton. Couldn't even finish it. Take care. Yeah,
3: we don't want to start that <laughs> war again. Oh. No, no. I just want uh, to point. I want after- to point out that I. This is referring to my. Hate for Hamilton the Musical, not Hamilton the Driver. Hamilton the Musical is a piece of trash. Hamilton the Driver is possibly the greatest athlete ever. Well, <laughs> um, Some people were hitting me up on Twitter because I talked about Hamilton the Musical.
1: It's uh, There's some diehard fans that will take you to the good, grave. You
3: know what, man? I i applaud them i want to encourage musical theater kids to listen to this podcast i was a musical theater kid so absolutely um it's it's a bad musical but musicals are cool
2: (laughs) yeah that was uh what a takeaway (laughs) uh yeah fascinating story um brutal characters but uh learned a lot Thank you very much for listening to Pass Gas. Again, if you want to hit us up for fan mail, go ahead at passgas at donutmedia.com. Or if you know anything about the destruction of those cars, please do as well. Follow my friends at Joe G. Weber, at James Pumphrey, and follow me at Nolan J. Sykes on all social media. Big thank you to our producers, Thomas Willett and Bridget yeah. Davies for making the show possible and thank you joe for uh writing the script i had a lot of fun. thanks
1: yeah and thank you to uh you guys for being so charismatic and making my thursday morning wonderful all right <laughs> all right
2: all right be kind
3: i love you
1: as always uh wink wink nation keep it juiced.